you guys can go ahead and take a seat. Thank you guys for being here tonight. Uh, I have the privilege of introducing one of my really good friends, Miss Kelsey Poppenfoos. They're excited. Yep. Uh, Kelsey uh, is a product of the Net Ministry. She came through, it was about three years ago or so. Yeah. And so, uh, so she's come up through this ministry. She was discipled, and now she's a small group leader discipling other people. And uh, she has an amazing story, an amazing testimony. And uh, this summer, or uh, a few months ago, when we were talking about uh, doing the Swipe Right series, uh, we were all sitting at dinner or something. And I was like, Kelsey, you should talk. You have a great story. And she's like, ah. So if you ever are sitting by me, you might speak up Beware. here someday. Be aware. <laughs> so will you guys give her a warm welcome, and we'll get started. Well, I'm a little bit nervous, so just give me a little bit of grace here. Um, so we are going to be doing week two of Swipe Right, and this sermon is called The Point of No Return. Um, but I want to give you a little bit of information about myself. So like Adam said, I've been involved in the net for about three and a half years, I believe. Um, I'm a small group leader. Um, really, my story of change starts right here in this room. So... Um, I was right where some of you were, or I am, I was right where some of you are um, today, just three and a half years ago. So um, I am a teacher. I teach fourth grade here in Brownsburg. So I'm used to a little bit younger crowd, but I think I'll be good. Um, I just recently got married. So my husband, Casey's back there. Um, this, it's a little bit of importance for me to introduce him now because he'll be referenced later. So, um, so I'm really excited to share with you guys. We're going to be talking about obedience. Um, and this is something that I feel like I had to learn. Like it took me a very long time to learn obedience. And when I say obedience, I mean making decisions right now that get you closer to where God wants you to be. So instead of that path that you have desired for yourself, aligning yourself to what, you, to what God wants for you. And so that's what we're kind of going to be looking at. And we're going to be looking at two biblical brothers who kind of model this for us and how we shouldn't live. And so we're going to learn from them. Um, but I just hope to be giving you a little bit of encouragement as I share my story and we learn a little bit about these two brothers. So we're actually going to begin in Genesis 25. If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis 25, and we're going to start at 25 verse 21. And like I said, this is the story of two um, biblical brothers. And what we're going to find is that their genealogy of these two biblical brothers is connected to Abraham. And so we know Abraham was called the father of the faith and that he was prom promised many nations from him. So um, when we, that's good to know as I tell you um, the story. So we're going to go ahead and get started in Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening, she asked. And the Lord told her, the sons in your, room, in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. So in that little piece of scripture, we can already see that Isaac and his wife were trying to have children. She 
um, was pregnant with twins, and they are already battling that they're going to be two nations, and these two nations will be rivals. So we're already set up for some sibling rivalry. Some of you might be able to connect with that. It was true in Genesis, and it's still true here in 2018. So um, let's, we're going to go ahead and move on to verse 24. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat, so they named him Esau. So covered with a fur coat, this is like Chewbacca baby. Like, <laughs> so as we're learning about Esau, you can just imagine he's this like furry dude. So really hairy, kind of weird, but... Dear Jesus, please don't give me a furry baby whenever I get pregnant. <laughs> uh, Genesis 26, we're going to keep going. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. So we can see that he's grasping his heel. He's already challenging his brother even before he took his first breath. And again, this is another preview of that they're going to have some sibling rivalry. Continuing in 27, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Again, we have these two brothers. We have one that's really outdoorsy, woodsman kind of guy, goes and hunts, and then you have the other one who likes to stay at home, and he's close to mom. So we have daddy's boy and mama's boy. So they couldn't be any more different, and so we're kind of already seeing that their differences and the parents playing favorites, it's continuing into this sibling rivalry, continuing on 29. One day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. So here, Esau comes in. He's been out in the woods all day. He's starving. He's exhausted. He's what we call now hangry. So he just really wants some food. But the thing is, is that Jacob is being a little bit sneaky here. You know that Jacob's been on Pinterest all day looking for the perfect soup recipe, and he is using it to lure in his brother. He is trying to get his brother to sin. So he's being very sneaky here. He has a plan, and he's saying, trade me your rights as the firstborn son. We're going to continue. We're almost done. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn son. So what we see here is that Jacob actually talked his brother into signing away his birthright. So Esau signs along the dotted line and gives away his birthright. Probably not your best decision. This is what we call a swipe right decision. He signed along the dotted line and completely gave away what God intended for him. Now, let me explain to you a little bit about what's all included in this birthright so that you can fully understand the gift that he really gave away. So when you inherit the birthright, you are given a double portion of the family's inheritance. Sounds pretty nice, right? Spiritual 
spiritual priestly role in the family and the ability to lead disputes in your family and your family's business. So basically, you get the money and you get the power over the rest of your siblings. So no wonder Jacob wants this. They've been battling this out for their entire lives. Now, we see that Esau makes a very huge mistake. He leaves his birthright. He no longer has his birthright, but he has a full belly. In a minute's time, Esau gave up God's will for his life for a bowl of soup. Esau had reached the point of no return. And the point of no return is actually an aviation phrase, which comes from pilots. Pilots have a certain point of no return when they're flying from one destination to the other. And that is the place where they have to turn around. If they, they can no longer turn around and return back to their original location because they'll run out of gas. So they have to make that commitment at that point of no return that they're going to continue on to their final destination. And so you hear that phrase, the point of no return, you've heard of that before. And Esau was in that situation. He was at the point of no return. Now, I've kind of made Esau out to be this idiot, like barbaric dude, furry, you know, he's dumb. He gave away his birthright. But let's all be honest here. We're all capable of doing this too. Esau did this out of hunger. He wanted the immediate gratification. That's really what he was searching for his right now desires. Now, we might not, you know, give up things for a bowl of soup, but I wonder what is our bowl of soup? Maybe our bowl of soup might be sex. It might be for more money or more attention or more power like we saw from Jacob. Jacob wanted the power that came along with the birthright. Maybe you are going to give up whatever it takes to get the best job. Or maybe you'll sacrifice things that you thought you originally wanted to, for a husband or for a wife. Sometimes we can do, we would do whatever it takes to get those sometimes, no matter what we were sacrificing. And here's the scary part. The devil is out there cooking up this Pinterest-inspired, most amazing smelling soup, and he's cooking it at just the right time. He's cooking it when we're feeling unloved, when we're feeling stressed out, when we're feeling anxious, or when we feel like our needs aren't being met. That's the devil. He is giving us temptation. Our temptation comes from the devil, and it's going to feel like all of our happiness is attached to what he's cooking. It's gonna, we're not going to be thinking about all of God's promises for us or all that God says that we are. We're not going to be thinking about that. We're going to be thinking about what's right in front of us, what we can smell, what we can see with our eyes. We're not going to be thinking about the promises in some dusty book written thousands of years ago. We're going to be thinking about what feels good to us right now. Here's our warning. You don't want what the devil is cooking in his crockpot. You do not want what the devil is cooking in his crock pot because what he's doing is he is slow cooking the death of your calling, what he intended you to do. He's slow cooking your future relationships, maybe your current relationships. He's slow cooking the death of your marriage bed, of your deathbed. And he's going to do whatever it takes to get you off of God's path. 
Now, I picked a specific scripture in Hebrews 12, 16, verse 17. For those of you on your phone, you might be able to jump over to the message. I chose to use the message version, version of this because of the specific vocabulary that it used. And let me read it for you. Watch out for the Esau syndrome, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. You well know how Esau later regretted that impulsive act and wanted God's blessing, but by then it was too late. Tears or no tears. Now, this story that we originally looked at in Genesis was obviously in the Old Testament, but this was written again in the New Testament as a warning, as a caution for how we are to live, to avoid the Esau syndrome. Don't let the devil tempt you with what he's cooking up just to wreck you and your future. Don't let the devil win. Now, Esau might have made a really terrible decision, but Jacob's not innocent in this either. When we saw in Genesis 25, 30 through 31, he was tempting him. He was luring him. I can even just imagine Jacob's probably got that crock pot cracked open so that all of the smells come out, right? Just to make his brother even more hungry. He's wafting the smells around. He's waiting for his brother to become weak, just like the devil does to us. Jacob was waiting for his brother to fall short. And this is what Jacob's really wanted all of his life. I'm going to go ahead and read Hosea 12, 2, verse 3. And this is, again, it's later in the Old Testament. But it references this situation again. Hebrews 12, 2, verse 3. Now the Lord is bringing charges against Judah. He's about to punish Jacob for all his deceitful ways and pay him back for all he's done. Even in the womb, Jacob struggled with his brother, when he became a man, he even fought with God. So we can see Jacob's heart, he's always battling for something that he wants. And I think that Jacob's really full of jealousy. He sees his brother, he sees himself as the second best to his brother. He's not his daddy's favorite, right? He doesn't get all of the money. In his eyes, he is second best. And I wonder if some of us are feeling that way about ourselves. He wanted the birthright. He wanted the power. He wanted to be better than his brother. And I think we can relate. Jealousy is a very real feeling that we all experience, whether we want to admit it or not. But sometimes we catch ourselves thinking, if I only had their life, everything would be better. If I only had their income, I could go do all of the things that I wanted. If I only had their body and their clothes and I looked like that, then I'd be fine. If only I had a relationship as good as theirs. Or maybe if, I, if only I had a guy. I don't care what his morals are. Or maybe if I had a girl, I don't really care what, she, what she, her morals are either, her values. But I, wanna f I don't want to feel lonely anymore. Using a guy or a girl to fill your lonely void. Or maybe it's your sexual desires. We do that out of jealousy for something that we don't have, just like Jacob. We are Jacob every day when we scroll through our social media. Maybe you're like me, and you've done this in relationships too. My story's not pretty, but at one point, I was very desperate for a relationship and the attention of the opposite sex. There were things that I would do in college that does not make me feel good to come up here and tell you all about. 
I knew exactly what I needed to do to win over the guys. I would show more skin. I'd wear my low-cut shirts. I'd wear my short shorts. I would drink too much. On the weekends, I wanted to be in with the in crowd. And I was going to go away from the morals that I had and the values and my faith that I had developed as a, you know, a younger child and through high school. When I went to college, I completely left all of that because I wanted the attention of others, and I wanted a relationship. I knew exactly how to lure in a guy and gain power. I knew sex was, that a, was a man's biggest weakness, so I'd use it to make myself feel better, like I was in control, like I was the one getting attention. I would flirt, and like I said, I would wear things that were inappropriate. I would drink. I was not making decisions that really reflected who I was. Now, Adam shared a couple of weeks ago about how powerful sex really is. Sex is powerful in a marriage between husband and wife. But I wonder how often we actually use sex for power. It doesn't even have to be the full-on act of sex. Sending nude or inappropriate photos just to get the guy's attention or just to get the girl's attention, maybe saying inappropriate things through texting or flirting with no good intentions. What you're doing is you're using their weakness for your power. You're using their weakness for your power. And at the time, I was luring in all of the wrong kind of people. I was luring in guys that I would have never wanted to marry. And I was surrounding myself with friends who I should not have been around. They were leading me to make bad decisions. So just like in Hebrews 12, verse 16, it said to avoid the Esau syndrome, I think we could also say avoid the Jacob syndrome and our desire to gain power over other people. So I have four takeaways for us, um, and I think that these are really, we're all susceptible, susceptible to that. I knew that one was going to trip me up. Darn it. I should have taken it out and changed it then. We're all susceptible. Got it. Single, dating, marrying, maybe you have no, no desire to be in a relationship, but this can be go in other areas of your life, maybe in your job or your relationship with your family or your friends. We're all capable of making decisions in a moment's time that can take us past that point of no return. We're all capable of that. And sometimes it directs us in a place that we never wanted to be. So here's my first point. Your desires can keep you from your destiny. Your desires, your right now desires, can keep you from your destiny, what God has intended for you. Esau's was the desire for food, but really, desire is desire. Appetite's appetite. In a sexual sense, there's a good desire for sex and intimacy, like we learned from Adam. God created that in you. But when we let sex drive, it always leads to regret. Our temporary desires ruin your eternal reward. Sometimes your temporary desires can completely get you off track of your eternal reward. You can give up in minutes what you would later regret with tears, like, like Esau, for decades. And it happens so quickly. Those decisions that you could give up can happen so quickly. And the amount of time that it takes to swipe right or maybe 
to pull up a website that you know is going to lead you to pornography. It happens so fast. Or how long it takes, you know, it's so fast to steam up the windows of a car and make decisions that you know you never wanted to make. We're all capable of this, and it's what the enemy wants for us. He wants us to make decisions that are going to affect our future marriage and our future children because what you do now in your single life gets brought into your marriage, and then it gets brought on, you're having fights about it in front of your kids, or it leads to who knows what. You know, it could lead to divorce, and then your kids are wrecked by it. It really is quite the string. Sometimes we forget to think about what that's going to mean for our future. We're just thinking right now. And again, decisions that could affect our future in our job, for those of you who aren't thinking about relationships, the devil wants you to make unethical decisions or compromising choices that would impact your employment. He's putting those thoughts into your brain. He's luring you in. The devil uses things that feel good in the moment but bring some nasty regret later. It might feel good right now, just like when I was in college or, you know, even a little bit after college, I would go out and I would party and it felt right in the moment to drunk text somebody or drunk dial somebody or to send, to put all these things on Snapchat, my Snapchat story. It felt right. The next morning when I check it, when I'm sober, I'm like, oh my gosh, I really did that? Regret. It felt right, but now I regret it, and that's the devil. The devil is leading you to make those decisions that you're going to regret later. So we all need to realize that the devil cooks the soup, and if we sneak a little sip of his soup, we're really just moving ourselves away from what we ultimately one day are going to desire. It might not be on your radar right now, but it will be some, at some point. So how many of you have ever gone to the grocery store on an empty stomach? I need to see hands. How many of you have gone to the grocery store on an empty stomach? Right? Okay, we all have. My week, when I go into the grocery store with an empty stomach, I know that I have to avoid the potato chip aisle because that is my ultimate weakness. I love potato chips. And I know that if my husband comes with me, He's going to go straight to the ice cream. So I'm not going to give him anything in the freezer department, nothing but milk. I have to keep him as far away from the ice cream as possible. Because in moments of hunger, we can make really bad decisions. In moments of hunger, we make really bad decisions. So here's my second point tonight. When your stomach gets empty, your standards get lower. When your stomach is empty, your standards drop. Just like in the grocery store. Genesis 25:30 told us that Esau was starving. His stomach was literally empty. So his standards were not high. His present hunger completely outweighed all of God's promises. Sexual temptation does the exact same thing. We only think about the pleasant pleasure, pleasure, not the marriage or the future relationships that we might have. We fall victim to the devil's work and his timing all the time. As scary as that is, we fall into his work and his timing all the time. The devil is going to show up when you're in an argument with your spouse, with your significant other, or maybe when there's friction in your family, 
when maybe this is your opportunity to be a light to the people in your family, the devil's going to try and change that situation for you. The devil is working, and his, he's working on us, and his timing, he is always specifically planning his attacks. Not only will he show up, he's going to make sure that the sin feels really, really good. He is going to lure us with comfort sin. Comfort sin. The sin that makes you feel a little better. But the thing is, is comfort sin is a lie. And it's not going to satisfy you. It's a lot like drinking salt water. If you think about drinking salt water, you're really thirsty. You drink the salt water. It quenches your thirst temporarily. But then eventually, you're going to need more water because it's going to make you thirstier. It's a lot like that. Comfort sin. It's not going to satisfy you. Just like sex, you'll get a rush for it and you'll be lured in. Some of you might even think, well, if I've done it once already, what does it hurt to do it again? I've already sinned. We tell ourselves that. And then all of our problems and all of our guilt and all of our shame just get compounded and built up on top of that to where we find ourselves in a situation where we don't think we're worth God's forgiveness. So here's how we can fight against this. We must keep our stomachs full with God's word and his truth. We have to keep our stomachs full with God's word and his truth. It's so perfect, that song that they were singing right before I came up. I was sitting back there, I was singing, like, God, you're funny. Like, this is exactly what everybody needed to hear. Because if you're unclear of your calling or God's promises for your lives, we're going to tell ourselves the lies. The lies that I'm not good enough. I'm not worth it. I'm unworthy. If your stomach's not full on his truth, you are susceptible to that. I got it that time, susceptible. (laughs) Yep. So when you know who you are, those lies don't seep in. When you know who you are, the lies don't seep in. Psalm 119, David says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. If if God's word is hidden in your heart, it will help you make better decisions to keep you from sinning. What David's saying here is if I walk around in this crazy, sinful world hungry, I'm going to fall for all of the lies, just like in the grocery store. If I walk around hungry, I'm going to fall for all of the lies. But he's also saying, if I walk in the world with a full stomach, then all the ways that society's going to reel me in, I know to stand firm because of what God says about me and my value. I said earlier how sex is powerful, and sometimes we use it for power. Guys and girls outside of marriage both know what power it holds, so we use it to our advantage. If I do this with him, then he'll want me, he'll love me. Or if I tell her this or show her all this attention, she's going to think I love her, and then she will give me whatever it is that you're seeking. You can fill in the blank with what it is for you. If I tell her this or if I tell him this or if I do this with him, he's going to fill my need. But if you fill yourself with God's truth, you won't be tempted with all that. 
You're going to know you are already loved. And you don't need a girl or a guy or anyone else to fill that void for you. Jesus was the true model of this. Look at how Jesus handled temptation. He didn't fall for anything that the devil brought his way because he understood the power of God's word. So we have to fill our stomachs with truth. And here's some ways that you can do this. Open up your Bible before you even get out of bed, before your feet touch the ground. Fill yourself with God's truth so you are ready for everything that's out in the world where the devil's going to try and knock you down. Maybe that's the Bible app streaming through your car speakers. Or maybe you're doing a daily devotional that you do before you leave the house. Join a small group. That's part of my story, and I'm going to hear a little bit about that in a second. But join a small group to be surrounded by community of people who think the same way or who are battling the same things but want to be on track with what God wants for their lives. That's what small groups are for. And maybe you have certain things that you are really feeling stuck in, some sin that you're really feeling stuck in. I ask you to get an accountability partner, somebody to hold you accountable who understands who understands where you've been, your story, and can keep you moving forward. Start serving. Because when you're serving, it fills you up. You all know that. When you're doing things for other people, it fills you up. So maybe start serving here in the net or start serving at your church. Or how about this? Go outside of the church and start serving. Jess Boney, that one was for you. To get outside of the church to go and start serving other people so that they know God's truth is inside of you. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Let that be what fills you. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And we can do that by serving. There's a phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And you've probably heard of that phrase before. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. But when you keep your heart full of his word and keep your hands busy serving him, you're not going to be given in to the devil's temptation. So now I'm going to give you a little bit of preview of my story. So three and a half, four years ago, probably, I was sitting in, in big church here at Connection Point, and Pastor Steve was giving his spiel about, you need to get in a small group, you need to get in a small group, it'll help you. And I did not want to believe it. But I sat there, and I just felt that, like, pit in my stomach, like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I have to do it. So I didn't come to the net first. I went from big church to Connection Corner. I drug myself there because I can tell you I had a million reasons in my mind of why I did not need to go to Connection Corner. I had my life figured out. I was good. I had been sobbing in church for the last hour and a half, but I was good. (laughs) I had been in an ungodly relationship, and I had already made decisions that I regretted. The thing was is that I was really, now I can say that, I was addicted to that relationship. I would do whatever it took to get him to love me. Didn't matter how far away it was luring me from my real values. I was going to do whatever it takes. I didn't see it at the time, and everybody told me that. But he was unfaithful, and I still didn't even want to end it. He was unfaithful multiple times, and I had such a tight grip on that. 
that I wasn't willing to let it go. The root of that is that I doubted my worth. I told myself I wasn't good enough and that I wasn't ever going to find anyone else. So I held on to this bad relationship until the time that I joined the small group. Now, it didn't happen immediately. Everybody can attest to that who was in my small group. It took a really long time. But gradually, week by week, chains were broken. The addiction was starting to release. And I started to realize who I was. But it took people encouraging me and speaking truth to me. I mean, Adams, how many times did we sit at Starbucks? And every time I'd sit down, I'd just instantly cry. My heart knew that I was not in the right relationship. But I wasn't willing to let go of it. So gradually, I broke that addiction of that relationship, and I saw what I was worth to God. What I learned was that I was a child of God. I was adopted by his blood. I was his daughter. And that's the same for you. No matter what sin you've committed or where you've been, you are chosen not forsaken, just like the song said. You are chosen. You are his chosen son. You are his chosen daughter. A chosen generation. You are his. I dare you every morning when you're going to get ready and you're looking at yourself in the mirror, I, tell, I dare you to tell yourself whose you are. I am called. God has a plan for me. I am chosen. He loves me. I am loved, I am equipped, I am strong enough. And when your stomach is full on that truth, you won't be tricked. You're going to feel much more confident in your decision making. And you will not be defined by how many likes your posts get on Instagram. You will not feel that FOMO, that fear of missing out when you're scrolling through social media. When your stomach is full on the truth, those things don't affect you anymore because God's words are going to speak to you, and this is what they're going to say. They're going to say, the only thing you're missing out on is the regret that comes with that. The only thing you're missing out on is the guilt. The only thing you're missing out on is the heartache. The only thing you're missing out on is the consequences that come from those decisions. You're missing out on all the things that God does not want you to experience. He has great things ahead for you, and he's not trying to keep something from you. The devil is the one telling you that because the devil is a liar, and Jesus came that you would have life and life abundantly. That is what he wants for you. Now, my story continues with a happy ending, and that as slowly I got closer and closer with God, he brought me Casey. Now, that was not an easy road, and I did a lot of work on my own when I was single. That's the nice part about this is because I was able to fill myself with so much of truth, and I was going, and I was doing all these things, and I had developed relationships with people here in the church, and I was being held accountable, and I was on the right track. And I can say that that's something that drew Casey into me. Our very first date was here at church because people knew that I was plugged into this church. And so when they heard that Casey was looking for a church 
and he was single, they were like, I've got the perfect person for you. So they brought him here, and we literally had our very first encounter in the cafe just down the corner over here. So there was no doubt, well, maybe there was, but after about 15 minutes after service, Casey and I are walking around, and there, I felt like there was no doubt that he could not have known my values. I met him in church, not saying that you have to meet them in church, but that was a nice little perk. But when we got to talk, I figured out that what I had been doing in my single years is exactly what he had been doing in his single years. We were both learning how to get over our sins and filling ourselves with God's truth. He had messed up too. I had messed up. But we had decided that we had, when we were kind of started dating, that we were going to make decisions that were going to keep us right there with God. We weren't going to make decisions. We weren't going to have sex. We weren't going to live with each other before we were married like we had before. Right? We were going to make decisions that were going to keep our relationship lined up with what the Lord wanted. And I specifically remember, this kind of goes back to that compounded guilt. I specifically remember after like, I don't know, maybe like six months dating him, um, I, I said like, I just feel so different about this relationship. Like there isn't any guilt where I felt like I was finally doing the right thing because I didn't have that like shame because I was making decisions that I knew I wasn't supposed to. It felt so different, and I really just can't describe it, but Jesse's over here. Yeah, yeah. So I know he gets it. Glad you get it, Jesse. But we chose to honor God's design for relationships, even though we'd already messed up, and maybe that's some of your stories in here. I'm not telling you that the temptations weren't there. There were lots of temptations. But here's the thing. In our single lives, we got our stomachs full. So we knew how to beat those temptations when we were in a relationship. Now, you might be thinking, I am way past that. I am past the point of no return. But let me tell you something. That's not true. Some of you might even think, like I kind of did. I used to. Well, I'm in college. I'm allowed to be dumb. And the Lord's going to forgive me. The Lord's going to forgive me. I'll be good. He'll forgive me later. But here's my thoughts on this. Wouldn't you rather the Lord be blessing you rather than just spending all of his time forgiving you? Wouldn't you rather the Lord be blessing you in your life right now instead of just forgiving you for all the things that you're not doing right? I would, I know for me, I would rather be giving prayers of thanksgiving for my blessings Those are much better and much easier to handle than the ones where you're on your knees praying for forgiveness with guilt overcoming you. Because I've been in that place. I specifically remember that. The prayers for Thanksgiving feel so much better. So don't let your values be vulnerable. Don't let your spiritual stomach get empty. Don't trade what you want most right now and forgetting everything else in the back. Don't do that. Here's my third point. In all you do, think, follow through. In all you do, think, follow through. So it rhymes. What Esau should have done is he should have stepped back from the table and gotten some perspective on what he was doing. He didn't, but he should have. 
Sounds obvious, right? Take a step back. Think about what your decision you're making. But he didn't do that. Sometimes we don't do that either. Sometimes we don't stop to think about the follow-through. Like, how is this going to affect me in the long term? Like, how am I going to share my sexual past with my future husband? Or how am I going to share that with my future wife? Or how am I going to explain that I'm addicted to porn? What are they going to think about that? Those are hard conversations. But you can stop doing those things right now and have a story of redemption. You can stop those things right now and have a story of redemption. Because when we stop and think about the follow-through, we can also think about our, our eternal reward. We're a thousand years removed from Esau's story. But the story's still being told, and it's still relatable to us. So we have to protect ourselves from the Esau syndrome. Scripture tells us to gain a heart of wisdom and to number our days. And if you number your days, you're going to get a heart of wisdom. All of that is about pressing pause and thinking about the follow-through. At the end of your life, I can imagine that when I'm on my deathbed, you know, at the end of my life, I'm not going to be thinking about how much money do I still have in the bank? What kind of house do I live in? What kind of car do I drive? What's my job? You're not going to be thinking about that. What you're going to be thinking about is the relationships that you've built right here. You're going to be thinking about the relationships that you've developed on earth, your kids, your spouse, your parents. You're going to be thinking about the relationships, your friends, the people you're around on earth. But there's one other relationship you're going to be thinking about, and you're going to be thinking about your relationship with the Lord because you're going to be ready to get, go see him, and you're going to be thinking about, was my relationship good enough? Was it strong enough? You're going to be thinking, maybe you're going to be excited, can't wait to see him. So really, it's all about our relationship up and our relationships right here. It's not about all of the things. But if we look up and start living for our eternal reward, then we can swipe left and swipe right on all of the things that are not in God's sight. When we're focused on our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with people, we are not going to be lured in by all of the bad decisions that surround us. God doesn't just save you so that you don't go to hell. God doesn't just save you so that you don't, don't go to hell. He's saving you so that you can shake the gates of hell. He wants you to shake the gates of hell with your relationships and the people you poured into and the people you serve. That's, that is what God wants you to do. And anything that's stopping you from that is the devil. He wants you to shake the gates of hell. The right now decisions, those are really loud. And it's getting our attention our right, right now yells really loud. That instant gratification, it seems so nice and satisfying. But the later, thinking about later, it lasts so much longer. Decisions that are going to affect your later are going to last so much longer. Resisting that instant gratification and pressing pause to gain a better perspective, that's going to last so much longer and bless your life so much more than just thinking about right now. That instant gratification. This is my last point. The band wants to come up. Your entire life can change in a minute's time. 
Your entire life can change in a minute's time. Now, we saw that in the negative sense in Esau's life. He signed along the dotted line. He pledged an oath, and he begged and cried tears because he was so desperately wanted to get his birthright back from Jacob, but he couldn't. The consequences remained. However, in the positive sense, this also is true, that your entire life can change in a minute's time. There may be some of you in here who have resisted the sexual temptation or haven't experienced that temptation yet. Here's your warning. Trust me, it's better to do things God's way than your way. He knows what he's talking about. And he's not trying to keep you from fun. He's trying to keep you from devastation. And he's trying to keep you from heartache and regret. Now, there may be some of you who are in here and you're like me and you're thinking, well, I've already ate the soup, so I'm screwed. No one here cannot eat the soup, myself included. But you heard my story and my sins. I'd given things up that I never wanted to give up. But in a positive way, your life can change in a minute's time. The consequences might still remain, but you don't have to face those consequences alone. God is with you. He is for you. And he is so good that well, he will even bless you in places you should have never gone or places that you had no business being, just like me. He blessed me in that. He can forgive and he can restore. But in order to get that, you have to say, from this day forward, I want to honor you. I want to worship you. I want to love you. I want to follow you from this day forward. Guys, he's offering you forgiveness. You just have to reach out and accept it. Pray with me. Dear God, thank you so much for all of the hearts in this room, for all of the stories that have already been told, and for now, all of the story that's left. God, I just ask that you work in the hearts of all of us, that we might realize the truth about who you say we are so that we are not tempted by sin, that we can prepare ourselves for a strong future. God, I thank you so much for your forgiveness. None of us would be here without that forgiveness, God. And because you died on the cross, we can forget all of those sins and we have a promise of a future with you. God, I thank you and I praise you. In your name I pray, amen.